Good evening, ladies, gentlemen, and NBs, and welcome to Working Class Advocates. I'm your host, Jesse Austin. We have a very special guest on the show today, journalist for Medium and co-host of Revolutionary Socialist Review, Rainer Shea. You can follow him on Twitter at Rainer underscore Shea. Welcome to the show, comrade. I'm a big fan of your work. It's an honor to have you on. Oh, thanks. You called me a journalist for Medium. Well, the truth is that I'm a journalist on Medium in spite of Medium. Uh, Medium does not like me. They're looking for the next excuse, whatever it will be, to sock my account, like how they socked my last account. Mm -hmm. And there's an interesting story uh, behind that. See, three years ago, I wrote an article about the White Helmets exposing their ties to terrorist organizations and uh, their uses in Western war propaganda about Syria against Assad. And many months later, like eight months later, I got an email from Medium saying that my article on the White Helmets had been taken down by their trust and safety team. And that was uh, just one step away from me getting my original account on Medium taken down permanently. And it was taken down a few months after that. And it's, it's clear that the reason that Medium used for taking down my article and ultimately my overall account was that I had caused reputational harm, as they said, to a person or organization. And the thing about uh, <laughs> this whole situation was people on Medium attack organizations and individuals all the time, but it's only the white helmets that receive this special protection. Yeah, I was just about to say, I, I thought like those organizations like Medium by default had a stance of like, our writers don't necessarily reflect all of our opinions and beliefs and stuff. Now, White Helmets, that is the UN organization, right? The peace organization? Peace organization. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so the topic of today's discussion is class war in Colombia. Uh, I've only done a little bit of homework on this, but I know there's a sizable populist movement there being led by a revolutionary cadre called the Frontline or La Primera Linea. Uh, from the re initial research I did on Unite for Action, I learned that Colombia is statistically the most dangerous place to be a trade unionist. And from the footage I've seen, the police there are only exacerbating the anger of the public who seem to have sided with the Frontline revolutionaries. So. That's my very shallow understanding of it. I hope there are some Marxist-Leninist groups in the front line that can utilize this energy to its full potential. But again, I'm no expert on this. That's why you're here. Uh, what should we be highlighting when it comes to this movement? Are there any misconceptions about what's happening in Colombia that need to be cleared up? Whatever your approach you want to take with it, just jump right in. Well, the misconceptions are being put forth by the furthest right most uh, ideologically oriented right-leaning publications and think tanks in this country like the Heritage Foundation and Ben Shapiro's The Daily Caller I think it's called mm -hmm. uh, and there's the libertarian publication Reason. These kinds of uh, sources have been putting forth this idea that the protests are incited secretly by foreign actors or by and or by criminal groups and that there's this 
a huge malicious conspiracy going on behind the scenes to incite what they call leftist violence within Colombia. And they've come up with slogans, strategic slogans, to uh, make these protests easier to demonize, like, uh, like Castro Chavismo. That's the term that is being used by the people in the camp of former Colombian President Alvaro Uribe to characterize these protests, that it's all just the product of subversion by Castro Chavismo. And uh, otherwise, they're, they're using a pretty weird term, pretty, uh, also pretty interesting term, gender ideology. That's uh, the slogan that these neo-Nazi governmental factions have been using to justify human rights abuses against the anti-austerity protesters in Colombia. Gender ideology, this idea put forth by uh, TERFs, by transphobes, that there's this conspiracy to indoctrinate the youth into becoming LGBT, becoming queer, becoming trans. Right, uh, Bill Nye's part of it. It's, it's a big thing. <laughs> <laughs> weird. Yeah, this weird paranoia is getting exploited by these propagandists uh, within Colombia as part of what Uribe calls the dissipated molecular revolution theory. Uh, it's, it's a pretty uh, convoluted uh, concept, the dissipated molecular revolution. It's, it seems pretty cryptic and incoherent, and it's actually presented deliberately in a cryptic way. From what I have gathered, it's called dissipated molecular revolution because the goal of the people who are promoting it is to stamp out a potential revolution within Colombia on a molecular level. And this requires characterizing all facets of society within Colombia that don't conform to the free market fundamentalist, neo-colonialist, Zionist ruling ideology whether these uh, facets are human rights activists or trade unionists or indigenous rights advocates, anti-austerity protesters, civic society too, all of them are uh, put under the umbrella of this shadowy, far-reaching conspiracy to undermine, that's the thing. What, what they're, they're working against is white supremacy within Colombia. What they're working against is brutal capitalist exploitation of many millions of people. Colombia, like pretty much every other state within Latin America, is effectively a settler colonial state that's obviously subservient to the more powerful settler colonial state of the U.S. It's uh, in a situation where white landowners control so many resources and uh, they, of course, control the government. And it's, it's, it's funny because there's this one column from a failed libertarian politician in Colombia where he tries to vilify the indigenous land back movement in Colombia by saying that they're, uh, they're trying to exploit the land there. It, it's, it's, it's really absurd how these... Uh, pro-regime propagandists try to uh, turn the situation on its head. Yeah, like twist everything backwards. Yeah, 
like like the MST in Brazil, like uh, they're seizing seizing land, but of course the landlords that are holding on to it and not doing anything with it are really the ones that are at fault there. Right. And this dissipated molecular revolution theory is uh, so that's a that's a boogeyman term then. Sorry to interrupt, but to be clear, that's that's a boogeyman term that they came up for 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 this revolution, the dissipated molecular. Yeah, well, it's it's also uh, uh, it's also seemingly a uh, military doctrine uh, that mm. they're they're trying to use to wage counterinsurgency, and this doctrine is uh, the driving force behind this neo-Nazi governmental faction that's been directly instructing the police in Colombia on how to break up the strike, how to counter the protests. And they've, they've tried to justify these world-shocking human rights abuses, world-shocking acts of police brutality, paramilitary assassinations, atrocities by the military against civilians. They try to justify it all by uh, painting everyone who participates in the protests as part of this uh, conspiracy, effectively treating the entire population as enemy combatants. And uh, when I've encountered this reality, I've thought of the war on terror. I've thought of Guantanamo Bay and how throughout these last couple of decades since 9-11, there's been this effort within the U.S., to expand the definition of a terrorist, to ship away at civil, civil liberties and uh, make it so easy for people to be indefinitely detained, detained without a trial and tortured. So these same folks uh, you said are also defending human rights violations in Israel. And like, would these people also be the ones putting out the propaganda like that if you're for the BDS movement, then you must be anti-Semitic, et cetera? Well, uh, naturally, since uh, the entire right is pro-Israel and the entire right is inclined to uh, support this narrative about BDS being anti-Semitic. And there's where the Colombian narco regime, it's a narco regime that should also be noted, uh, is deeply tied in with the Zionist state. Hugo Chavez said that Colombia is the Israel of Latin America. Hmm. Uh, and this is something that uh, the Colombian regime has taken as a compliment. I knew uh, I was on the something there. Yeah, yeah. Israel has provided Colombia with ample military technologies and, uh, and military training. They've been exporting their uh, tactics for repressing the Palestinians uh, into this uh, Latin American regime, and the consequence has been the horrific atrocities that we've seen committed against the people in Colombia this year. And there's another parallel with the United States, in addition to the war on terror thing, because Israel has also been training U.S. police forces to the effect that police violence against marginalized communities has been increasing this last decade or so. Yeah, it also, uh, what you said, it reminded me of uh, the Korean War. You know, there was some general, remember from that, that uh, documentary, uh, Loyal Citizens of Pyongyang and Seoul, who said that they were fighting a people and not just a military enemy. And so he didn't feel guilty about killing so-called civilians. 
Right, right. According to the dissipated molecular revolution theory, uh, civilian is uh, basically just another insurgent if that civilian is shown to be stepping out of line in any way. And Colombia is a place where effectively political genocides have been occurring for decades. Uh, in the repressive campaign that Colombia carried out from the 1980s to, uh, to the early 2000s, honestly, it's ongoing. But throughout this political genocide, over 6,000 people got extrajudicially killed, uh, either for being communists or for being perceived to be adjacent to communists. And this happened after Operation Condor. Uh, so Colombia is a place where it's very normal for uh, somebody to get killed just for expressing the wrong opinion or uh, affiliating with the wrong organization. Wow. Geez, yeah, it's hard to believe any of these governments find uh, imperialism worth all of the bloodshed, you know? Well, isn't that just part of the cost of this imperialist arrangement that's been dominating Latin America since the outset of colonization? Because the reason why U.S. imperialism still dominates Latin America and the rest of the global south, the reason why it's uh, still so hard for revolutionaries to take power in these kinds of places is because U.S. imperialism continues to financially dominate uh, these regions. It's only after U.S. imperialism's financial grip uh, greatly loosens that the revolutionary struggle in places like Colombia will stop being obstacle-filled and discontinuous. So we'll have to withdraw the IMF and stop setting up, you know, sweatshops in all of these places. And also, stop. I, I know that Colombia is not on the actual list of, there's like a list, I was going to pull up the graphic here, um, 56 Latin American countries that there have been U.S. interventions in. But I know that like Panama, you know, if Colombia is Latin America is Israel, then Panama seems to be Colombia's Texas. It seems that the United States has um, supported their secession that basically broke up Colombia into Colombia and Panama. I'm not sure if that's fully accurate, but that's what I learned from my research. Oh, okay. So there's been a balkanization process too. That makes sense given uh, all the history of imperialism. Another thing that I should talk about is the increasing success of the resistance to uh, Colombia's regime. See, Plan Colombia, which has been in place these last couple decades, I, I think that's the timeline, has been hailed by the imperialists as a great success that's to be emulated in uh, uh, warfare-ridden places everywhere from Afghanistan to Mexico. They better uh, but, not emulate it. But uh, but the the reason uh, <laughs> why they they better not is Plan Colombia's success has come with the caveat of uh, then producing a renewed insurgency, a renewed guerrilla revolutionary struggle uh, that's been increasingly successful uh, since twenty sixteen. Uh, 
there has been a new FARC faction. Uh, I, I think it's it's pronounced Segunda Marcatela. I, I don't I don't think I pronounced that right. Since 2016, when uh, this organization signed a peace deal with the government, it's been staying away from guerrilla struggles. But a contingent within the FARC has uh, taken things into their own hands and has been leading a new armed struggle. And they've been gradually growing. They've been gaining the consent of the masses by organizing themselves in a way where they're compatible with all the oppressed classes within Colombia. They're not just a peasant organization. They're designed to represent oppressed peoples from uh, both urban and rural areas, essentially represent everyone who they're trying to get them to, to support them. And they've not been adventurous either. Uh, so they've been viewed as increasingly legitimate. They've been viewed as the superior alternative to getting ruled by the government, by uh, seemingly the decisive amount of people who live under their jurisdiction. So they've been getting increasingly successful. And obviously this new explosion in class struggle within Colombia has been helping them, though they have to stay within their limitations. There's limitations to what they can do, and they, they know that, but it's because they know that, that they have the potential to become the vanguard. And it's because they have the potential to become the vanguard that the government is so anxious to break up these strikes and protests because the way that the Cuban revolution happened was it wasn't just guerrilla warfare. It was a combination between guerrilla warfare on, on the part of the vanguard and mass participation in strikes. A revolution uh, can't be legitimate. It can't succeed without the participation of the masses. This is something that, the, uh, th that these guerrillas recognize. Uh, so they're inching their way towards revolution. And uh, despite the Colombian government's uh, lately gaining territory from the remaining guerrillas uh, uh, in this last year or so amid the pandemic, this contingency of guerrillas is increasingly successful in their own right. And uh, this is something that we're going to need to watch and take example from in the coming years. Okay, interesting. You brought up Cuba. I was just about to bring up Cuba, actually, because you brought up the Vanguard. Speaking of the Vanguard, naturally, Western media has stopped covering Colombia in favor of protests like Cuba. I got the same sort of feeling I got when they covered the Hong Kong protests. They're hyper-focusing on these protests in Cuba despite the fact that a large chunk of these protesters are clearly in support of Fidel Castro's vanguard and revolution. What, what do you think, um, like, I know Medium is probably not going to support like you continually speaking out about this kind of thing, but you know, do you think anybody else out there will be speaking the truth about what's happening in Colombia, or do you think that it'll get swept under the rug and lost well, it's uh, a lot like the situation with Israel or the 
situation with uh, with Brazil or the situation with fascist India, where the imperialists are uh, propping up these fascist regimes that are committing genocides uh, and the extent to which the atrocities of these regimes can be exposed to the American public is limited and there's increasing censorship uh, both within the U.S. and within places like Colombia. But things are constantly in motion. The conditions are constantly evolving. The weaker U.S. imperialism, the weaker U.S. finance capital get the closer these regimes get to their demise. After the US dollar crashes to the extent that it's never crashed before, I, I think this is a looming event. Places like Colombia are going to get a lot closer towards revolution. Regimes like the Colombian narco settler colonial regime are going to be left in a desperate situation where the revolutionaries are suddenly going to have even more perceived legitimacy than they do now. There's going to be a breakdown of many states throughout the capitalist world, especially places like India, which are already pretty unstable. And this is, I, I think that all we can do is uh, express solidarity with these liberation movements while working to bring down the empire from the inside. That makes sense. So that leaves me feeling pretty optimistic then. So we'll be able to, in the long run, suppress the reactionary impulses that have, you know, enabled people like Trump and Modi and Ivan Duke to seize power and basically stamp out all resistance as the American empire falls. That's good news. And I, I think it's important to talk about Colombia uh, because uh, we've recently been bombarded with uh, claims that Cuba is a repressive dictatorship that lacks legitimacy. And we're constantly bombarded with claims about how leaders like uh, Lukashenko in Belarus, Kim Jong-un, or uh, Xi Jinping Vladimir Putin, Assad, Maduro, uh, even Louis Arce in Bolivia, how they all uh, supposedly lack legitimacy for their authoritarian tendencies, however real, however exaggerated these tendencies are. But uh, when you, all you have to do is look at Colombia to see that the U.S. imperialists are the greatest sources of state repression the greatest defenders of dictatorship and tyranny. Colombia isn't technically a dictatorship, but it's not like its political system will ever allow for uh, uh, candidates who really care about the environment, human rights, workers' rights to win. And uh, people who speak out within Colombia are constantly getting extrajudicially killed, tortured, arbitrarily imprisoned much like the United States, but I think in a, it's, a, it's a more heightened scenario that uh, these dissidents within Colombia are living through. I think that Colombia uh, provides a foreshadowing to what conditions in the U.S. will be like when the capitalist crisis in the U.S. 
uh, reaches a point where conditions here are a lot like in the global south, where capitalism has contracted so much, inequality has gotten so bad that we're going to be left in this situation that's a lot like the situation of the uh, displaced people within Colombia. Millions of people have become displaced within Colombia, have become effectively refugees because of the hyper-exploitation that's taking place by these extractive companies, by these poachers, by these hyper-exploiters. Of course, our media will be hypercritical of, you know, like all of those leaders you mentioned. One thing I noticed is that there was a lot of commotion over Trump meeting with Kim Jong-un and uh, talking to him, but he was arguably closer to the right-wing leader Duterte, was even friendlier with him, yet that didn't seem to spark nearly as much outrage. So I tend to agree with you on that front. What's happening in Colombia is just disgusting. You know, those police are even more out of control than our police, as you've mentioned. I don't know why governments on this planet think they can just crack down as brutally as they'd like and think that that's somehow going to remedy the situation at all. I express my full support for everyone who is out on the streets fighting this new segment of the FARC that you brought up. Could you um, tell us what their, what was their title again one more time? I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, but it's something like okay. Segunda uh, Marquiela. Like Segunda Marquiela. Okay. So congratulations to them, just to, you know, make that clear. What else did you want to touch on? What I find so interesting about Colombia is that uh, from what I've gathered, it's seemingly the most uh, advanced, most extensive propaganda state in all of Latin America. Its leaders have formulated a coherent or semi-coherent, uh, as coherent as it can be, framework for demonizing the people who are deemed a threat to uh, the preferred order. They've created this crazy narrative about how anybody who defies the agenda of the far right needs to be treated as an enemy combatant. And uh, as, when I look at this, there's real parallels with the propaganda effort that's emerged in this last year or so around Black Lives Matter, because uh, the Black Lives Matter protests have been portrayed by far-right demagogues uh, when places like Fox News. As terrorist like movements. Ben, ben Shapiro as, uh, as the products of some kind of conspiracy to uh, destroy society, whether this conspiracy comes from George Soros or from <laughs> China. Either way, uh, it's Marxist. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and, and Black Lives course. Matter is a Marxist organization. Let's be clear, but not Marxist in the uh, imagination of the right wing mind. You know, like it's a totally different Marxism, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah, there, there's this uh, effort to uh, paint these social movements with this broad, paranoid brush that is intended to justify human rights abuses. That's what this is all about, rationalizing police brutality. Right, like you were saying earlier, how they, how they would use this uh, 
buzzword gender ideology or whatever because gotta crack down on the sjw's right right and it, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty weird thing because gender ideology uh reflects a global uh trend by reactionaries uh like jk rowling to vilify the transgender movement uh and to uh to portray the lgbt movement as uh representing some kind of uh some kind of sinister plot right to... subversive academic conspiracy for everybody watching uh gender critical transphobes they frame just you know trans people existing as gender ideology so that's what this is all about continue right so so there's this uh this overarching narrative that i see from reactionaries whether in the U.S. or in Colombia or in other places, uh, there's this overarching effort to uh, paint uh, all these social movements, whether it's Black Lives Matter or the indigenous land back movement in Colombia or civic society, human rights, anti-austerity movement, the environmental movement, LGBT movement, anti-imperialism in general as the, the product not of the conditions that have prompted people to rise up but as uh, the product of a malicious calculated propaganda campaign by shadowy conspirators it's based around the obfuscation of political theory recently candace owens claimed that the recent uh, monopolization of the housing market the exacerbation of inequality in the u.s is actually a communist phenomenon uh, yeah i saw that with the round <laughs> yeah that's that's rich yeah so so there's this uh incoherent contradictory narrative that's being peddled throughout the hemispheric right which is aimed at uh rationalizing a order where there's this constant inquisition against dissent, where anybody who steps out of the guidelines that the right has put forth, whether these are religious fundamentalist, whether these are free market fundamentalist, whether it's uh, gender critical, really gender fascist, anybody who expresses the wrong opinion uh, is a threat that needs to be taken out and there's some really dark uh implications of this because throughout the war on terror the u.s government has resorted to very extreme measures to counter people it deems enemy combatants this has included assassinating american citizens extrajudicially with drones that's right yeah i think um barack obama carried out that drone strike right right yeah i remember that but you know what? Um, it's amazing that these uh, right-wing think tanks and libertarian institutions in the United States have so much control over politics in all of these different countries. It sounds to me like there's plenty of institutions manufacturing consent for the right-wing in those countries as is. They don't really need help from the United States, you know? So that's why I sometimes get, you know, I feel like things are bleak and I 
I worry, like, should we be optimistic or should we be doing more? And what more is there that we can do, you know? Yeah, the prevalence of these kinds of reactionary ideas, and that's just one layer of it. There, there's also the issue, issue of ultra-leftism, which is uh, left-wing anti-communism. The prevalence of these reactionary ideas, these pro-imperialist ideas, is a reality that is going to represent a huge obstacle towards the liberation of what remains of imperial control. Uh, hmm. there, there's going to be a process in these, these coming decades where U.S. imperialism turns inwards, where U.S. imperialism unleashes invasions and great terror campaigns in places like Colombia, which are all obviously already at play, where U.S. imperialism resorts to concentration camps, extreme repression, assassinations, importing Colombia's repressive tactics to try to retain control. And a lot of the masses are going to need to overcome their indoctrination into this fascist ideology before a revolution in the core of the empire can take place. And what makes me hopeful is studying places like Colombia, places on the periphery of the imperial system, where there's evidence right now of the people rising up against these neocolonial regimes and carving out territories that I, I, I don't know if the guerrilla territories are expanding right now, but the group has gradually been growing. And the closer U.S. imperialism gets to financial collapse, the closer people like us, people who are building revolutionary cadres, get towards uh, seizing the moment and liberating the land we're on. Thank you. I appreciate that, Rainer. So earlier you mentioned something about left-wing communism being somewhat of a doozy here. So for everyone watching, uh, historically left-wing communism, I think if I'm getting this right, the Social Democrats historically were the right-wing of left politics globally. So when Social Democrats would crop up, their role would involve, you know, getting a socialist country back on track to capitalism or stopping a capitalist country from becoming fully socialist. Do you have that about right? Yeah, I, I think it was Kim Jong-il who observed that social democracy has been peddled as a compromise with imperialism and has been uh, used as a way for the imperialists to try to retain control over these exploited countries. And we're going to have to see how that plays out in places like Latin America, because you have these countries within Latin America, like Bolivia and Venezuela and Nicaragua, that have used electoralism as a means for putting in place anti-imperialist governments. But as we've seen, this is a precarious setup that's definitely not nearly as stable as the situation that Cuba has. Though Venezuela has been able to 
greatly fortify its freedom from imperialism by building up a million strong militia. And we'll see if uh, the MAS party in Bolivia, the socialist party there, emulates Maduro's route towards security. Okay. So another thing, you know, for modern day examples, you know, everybody points to the Nordic countries. And while, you know, they are, like I explained in a Unite for Action segment a while back, it's got the same problem as United States capitalism. You know, this looks like a nice country on the surface, but as with the United States, the social democracies in, you know, Norway, Finland, uh, Sweden, I think, I hope I didn't mention any that are not in this group, but they have a form of social democracy that, you know, everything inside the country is nice and there's no violence for the people there. But in the end, the paper trail, when you follow the money of all of these countries, economically, they're supported by imperialist actions around the globe. So you can even see in modern day examples how social democracy kind of skirts the obligation to provide people with real equality and genuine socialism in favor of some kind of like Trotskyist abomination, you know, like socialism in one country, but, you know, funded by imperialism globally. And the fact that these Nordic countries have been increasingly veering away from social democracy throughout this last half century shows the cost of reformism, of not having revolution. Right, uh, like we said before, back to capitalism, huh? Uh, yeah, well, it, it's, it's obviously always been capitalist. It's been inevitable that these gains by the working class in places like Norway would be shipped away at over the decades, because it was always inevitable that capitalism would contract, that capital globally would decline. There would be a, a decline in profits, which has occurred since the outset of the neoliberal era. Actually, neoliberalism was implemented globally in response to the weakening of global capital, with Chile being the laboratory in which they tested out this shock doctrine series of neoliberal policies, privatization, austerity, shipped away workers' rights, basically obliterated workers' rights, to be honest. And uh, increasingly, these kinds of policies have been applied to the Nordic countries throughout this last half century, because uh, no imperialist country has been free from the dynamics of, uh, of capitalism, of the historical trends that capitalism has been going in. And, and that, that's why it's such BS that we have social democrat politicians in the U.S. today who are, are promising a return to the New Deal era. They're promising a lifestyle like the, the ones that they have in Norway. But, well, first... I gotta admit, I was fooled by Bernie Sanders. Yeah, yeah. For, firstly, uh, social democracy is still imperialism when it's it's implemented in an imperialist country uh, so it's it's not the route we should be going in in the first place if we have any sense of morals and secondly social democracy as it existed in the middle of the 20th century 
isn't feasible anymore. The capitalist ruling class is never going to allow it to be restored to the form that it was in several generations ago. The welfare state is no longer compatible with the goal of keeping profits positive. The only way to keep profits up is to perpetually deepen the neoliberal austerity, privatization, wage cuts, progressive taxation, and effectively transfer the wealth of the proletariat ever upwards and make the richest keep getting richer. That's right. You know, and they use uh, the the most cunning strategies to be completely honest. You know, you got to give them credit. Like they wait until things are like so bad that everybody's so desperate that like a thousand dollars a month universal basic income sounds awesome. You know, everybody thinks, hey, I'd like to have that. And so if we got that, it would be celebrated as a major win when that would just be another tool to, you know, deepen this control and continue these policies that there's just way too much evidence for they don't work, you know? Yeah, like I said, the uh, overall trend is an importing of the conditions of the global south into the core of global imperialism. And this is manifesting in the expansion of the impoverishment that U.S. imperialism's internal victims have always lived in. We can't forget that even though the U.S. is the core of imperialism, it has these internal imperialist exploited populations like the natives and uh, the African communities that have always been a lot poorer than the whites. Uh, simply by their because of their role within this system. It's not in the interest of the empire to pay reparations or to give back the stolen land. So we've always had this underclass here that's been disproportionately poor. And increasingly, this poverty has been getting expanded to other demographics. And well, the poverty for the colonized has been deepening. Right, right. And this trend that you're talking about, the importing of the conditions of the global south to the imperial core, would you argue that like we're seeing the early examples of this with things like, you know, Standing Rock and Flint, Michigan, where our environment now is being so polluted and these reservations are being so polluted and these cities don't have water. That's like just the beginning, you think? Because like, if it weren't, you'd think they would, you know, not try to cover it up and they would address it professionally. Absolutely. And this also goes for repression. Like I said, the U.S. internal security state has been getting Israelified in the same ways that Colombian security state has been getting Israelified. And there's also the importing of mercenaries. Mercenaries are mm. uh, a, a major tool for repression across Latin America. Colombia is a big exporter of mercenaries. And in these last couple months in Minneapolis, the same city where George Floyd was killed, there has been a mercenary company that's been sending contractors to physically assault peaceful Black Lives Matter protesters. Uh, I, I'm gonna have to look for updates on this. This is a pretty obscure piece of information that's been reported on seemingly only by Unicorn Riot. I can't find anything about it in 
the major media, uh, which is unsettling because it is a sign of what's coming to a limitless number of localities around the country in the coming years and decades. Yeah, I definitely remember some story about these mercenaries with vans. They were kidnapping people. I'm not sure if that's the same story, but in any case, mercenaries, the use of mercenaries is always really sketchy business. I mean, you're talking about this is hiring unmarked, unnamed police officers. They don't have badges. They have unmarked vehicles. And they're actual police officers, but not for your government, for some firm that um, right. who knows who knows who's backing that mercenary group for whatever the movement is they're trying to squash. Yeah, the company there hasn't made its name known to the public. And when the victims of these mercenary assaults have publicly testified to Unicorn Right about their experiences. The mercenary company has sent someone to photograph them from a building above. So there's surveillance going on. There's a very clear effort to keep tabs on these political dissidents, to treat them more like insurgents than was normal prior to this mercenary trend. Right. That's a shame. These institutions want to play police. They should take some advice from the police book. And, you know, if you've got nothing to hide, why are you covering up your name? Why won't you let people know which firm is hiring these police officers? Is it because they're exercising horrible brutality? Exactly. You know? So, um, I guess if, if you uh, have anything more to say, I don't know if you're getting tired, uh, we can cut it off here. But um, I think we covered a lot of good ground. I don't know how long we've been going. But uh, what do you think? Oh, I've said my piece. I'm, uh, I, I think we got into some really good insights. All right. Thanks. Well, it was a pleasure having you on. This was great. I couldn't have went better. All right. I guess that wraps up our show. Uh, thanks again for coming on, Rainer. You're always welcome back in the future. And thank you all for watching tonight. Until next time, workers of the world unite. I love you all and have a good night. Yeah. I'm saying those in power have delusions of grandeur. They are the problem, we're the solutions. We stand up and call them out because we're ruthless and we go hard. Don't got no games to place, so we protest and vote smart. Protest and vote smart. We call for revolution since day one, get it understood? And we won't stop until everywhere it's all good. And we won't stop until, until, until everywhere it's all good.